What's up, church? Let's give the Lord a hand. Amen? We are so grateful to have you, and if you're a first-time guest uh, here at Stone Point, we're especially glad that you've taken the time to be here this morning, and uh, we pray um, that God just speaks to you and encourages you, and uh, that this is a place that not only do you uh, feel welcomed, but you feel like this is a place that maybe eventually you could call home, and so uh, we're just grateful that you're here. Uh, We're going to be diving in uh, today in week two of this series called Reset, and last week we talked about what it looked like to reset our identity, meaning that until we know exactly who it is that God's called us to be, we're really kind of paralyzed. We can't really move forward until you, you see, you recognize, you understand what it is that he's done for you and who it is that he wants you to be, what it is that he wants you to do with your lives. And matter of fact, I just want to read it to you and just kind of remind you of the text from last week. And that came from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And it says, but you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Really what Peter is saying uh, to a group of Christians who have scattered all across the world, they're running for their lives. He says, don't forget that God has redeemed you. Don't forget that he made you new in him. You were once not a people, you were once far off from God, and he has brought you to himself. And that, my friends, is the glorious hope of the Christian. That is why we live, and that's why we press on every day for the cause of Christ. Now, I know that there's many of us here today that we have struggles. Like, there's some of us that we look around right now and we go, I wish... I could change a few of my circumstances. Like there are some of you that just this last week, you were sitting around with a group of your friends and you were complaining about your job. And your thought was, I wish I could just get a new job. I wish I could just get out of this and I could find something better, better suited for my schedule, better suited for my family, something I actually enjoy. And that was some of your thoughts. Some of you, like right now, you look at your relationships, some friendships, and you go, I wish I could get a new group of friends. I wish I could get a new group of people that I hang around. Some of you are like, I wish I could get a new husband, you know? And your thought is, is like, I could really improve my circumstances. But what I want you to know and understand is that God is not interested in just merely changing your circumstances. And so I left you with this thought last week. And it's this, oftentimes we plead with God to change our circumstances, but we really don't need a change in circumstances. We need to reset with our identity. And the reason I say that is this, is that if you understand who it is that God's called you to be, and you understand what he's done for you, the forgiveness that he offered you on the cross, it can change your perspective. And no longer should you be wishing yourself out of a job or wishing yourself out of relationships. You should actually see that job and you should see those relationships through a different lens. And that's the lens that God offers when you know and understand that you're a child of God. And so my prayer is today that as we dive into the text, that you would not only understand your identity, but that identity would actually allow yourself to kind of focus and refocus on some things in your life, okay? Let's pray together, and then we're going to dive into a text. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, for all the people that are represented here, for for parents and children alike. Father, I pray that as we dive in, 
to your word that you would speak clearly to our hearts and lives. The Father, that you would remind us that we were once far off from you. And Lord, you've brought us into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ. Father, there are many of us here that we are still in darkness. Lord, we still feel far off. And I pray that today you would help us to understand that, Lord, there's been a way for us to come to God, and it's through Jesus. Father, for all of us uh, here, I just pray that you would help us to focus and have great clarity. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a guy uh, that you might know. Uh, his, not, his name was Clyde Beatty. Anybody recognize that name? I didn't figure so, but I brought a picture along just in case, okay? Clyde, was, uh, he was on the circus trail, and uh, he was a line tamer. He would tame not only lions, but tigers and uh, cougars and lots of different wild animals. And he had three tools in his, tr- his tr- uh, trick bag. One, he had a whip. Two, he had a, a little bag of treats. And three, he had a chair. And you're thinking, why in the world would he need this chair? But the chair actually helped, was one of his most useful tools. And uh, they would actually kind of use that across all circus trails um, throughout their route because uh, it was just a spectacular tool. And here's why. As he used that, he could put it in the face of a line and it would actually paralyze the line. The line wouldn't really be able to move. And the reason why is... Is because as the lion saw the foot of the stool, he saw four pegs. And he didn't know which of the four pegs to attack because he was out of focus. And when a lion would attack, he always looks for one object that he could actually pounce on. And so he didn't know what it was. And he had really just lost his focus. It kind of reminded me last week of First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And it says, be self-controlled and alert. Why? The enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he's looking for all of us. And honestly, so many of us feel paralyzed because we've lost our focus. We've lost our perspective of who it is that we are in Christ. And so as we dive in today, we're going to look at a text in Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to give you two assignments. One, as we walk out of this place today, may our prayer be, God, would you just realign my focus? Two, we're going to read the first 11 verses in this text, which are going to leave you with another 20 plus verses to read this week, maybe today when you get home, and that's your homework assignment. You got me? Two things. The first one, may you position your heart in such a way to be taught by the Lord. And number two, would you read the rest of it? Because it's huge as it comes to your identity, your purpose, and your focus. Let's read. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we would love to get you one as you leave. You can stop by our uh, resource uh, center uh, out there in the foyer. They'd be great, be glad to get you one. But Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law... Of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, that's good news if you are a believer in here today. That's good news if you're a Christian. Why? Because it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, hey, there's less condemnation. It doesn't say that one day before you stand before God, that that He's going to take it easier on you than He takes it on most people. It says, no, as you stand and you position yourself before God, there is no condemnation for those who are in what? Christ Jesus. What that means is, is that because of, verse 2, 
Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There was once a penalty that was weighing against us. We were weighed, we were scaled, we were balanced, and we fell short. And because of that, we received the penalty of condemnation, of sin, and of death. And instead of freedom, we experience bondage. Instead of forgiveness, we have the penalty of sin that presses on us. And yet it's because of Christ Jesus that he sets us free. And you are now free indeed. Amen? And it's because of what he has done that you are no longer held captive to all that was before you, all that you've done, all of your past, all of the things. You've been reconciled to Christ, and you are no longer standing under the penalty of death. Why? Because Christ Jesus did something for you that he was willing to take, what? Your place. So all the punishment, all the condemnation, all the penalty that you deserved, Christ has now borne the brunt of on the cross. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Now Paul pins these words and he uses some words that he was very careful in writing. Matter of fact, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he pins them in such a way that not only does it bring great clarity, but it also reminds us of his holiness. Look at it. For the law was powerless to do what it was because it was weakened by the flesh. See, the law, by all standards, was right. It was perfect. If everyone was to keep the law, it would have held up. The problem was, as one commentator said, the law was right, but it had no might. Meaning that because the the law, even though it was right, it was rendered ineffective because of people. Because of you and me and our sin, the law couldn't hold itself up. And the reason why is because we would always, what, fall short of the law, right? That's Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so even though the law was right, it never had the power to hold itself up because of sinful people. However, God, what, he had a different plan in a different way, and look what it was. He says that even though the law is powerless, it didn't have the strength to hold up. Who did? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. You see the words that he penned so carefully? He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What's interesting is, is he didn't say God sent his son to be sinful flesh. He said, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So what does that mean to you and me? It means that God did not send his son Jesus to simply be a sinner. He, he sent him to be what? Sin on our behalf. And there's a difference. The reason why is this. Sinners cannot die for sinners. As much as you would love to have the salvation for yourself or for your children, you could never ever bore the, the brunt or the weight of sin because you're a sinner yourself. Matter of fact, it kind of reminds you of the writer of Hebrews in 4.15. And he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. And so Jesus was without sin, but he came in our likeness, meaning he left the heavenly realm to dwell among a dirty, sinful people in order that he would bear the brunt of our punishment, of the sin, of the condemnation on our behalf, that anyone who would believe in him, trust in him, confess them, not only with their heart, but their lips would be saved. And because of that, you experience freedom 
rather than the chains that grip you because of your sin. And it was because of the Son and His likeness that He identified with us, although He never, what, became a sinner like us. And that, for that reason, He condemned sin in the flesh. And then verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. So was the law right? Yes. But it didn't hold up because there was never a righteous requirement. And so finally, the righteous requirement came in the final substitute in the form of a Savior who would meet the law's requirement. And that was Jesus. What was the law's requirement? That you were to be perfect. And you couldn't be perfect. Anybody here feel like they're perfect? No. I mean, you just never measure up. And so because of that, the law must have a requirement, and that's met through Jesus Christ. Look at 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, I want you to see this. Like, I could have started last week with this text. Like, this is, this is your identity. Everything that Peter spoke of is here. You were What? You're a holy people. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You were once in darkness. You've been called into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ. You were once far off and separated. You had not received mercy. Now you've received mercy. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. You fell short. You deserve condemnation. Because of Christ and what he's done, you have no more condemnation. You're now called into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's your identity. This is who we are. This is what we should be. This is what we live for. That's your identity. You no longer live according to the flesh, but now you live in the Spirit of God. Get it? Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have what? Their mind set on what the Spirit desires. You ever ask yourself the question, like, why is the world the way it is? You ever wonder, like, why is it so broken? Why is there so much hurt? Why is there so much chaos? Why is there so much devastation around us? Like, why are there earthquakes? And why are there wars and rumors of wars? And why is it that there are people who are stealing and taking and doing all these destructive things? There's the answer. Because they live according to the flesh. See, everything in the flesh says, I want what I want and I want it now. If you've ever wondered why a marriage goes astray, it's because there's two people who oftentimes want what they want right now. And instead of serving and surrendering to one another, they what? They want what I want. You look at a parent relationship. You look at kids. You wonder why in the world do they keep doing the same thing? It's because of our sinful flesh. It's because we gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And that's the greatest struggle. If somebody wants a pair of shoes and they don't have money to buy them, what will they do? They'll go steal them. If they want to be the first in their company and they don't, they don't really care who they step on to get there and they gratify the desires of the sinful nature and the flesh, they, what? they'll step on anybody. They'll say whatever they have to. They'll make up lies to what? To get ahead. And the reason why is, is because we in the flesh are swindlers we're, we're, we're adulterers, we're thieves, we're broken people who honor ourselves. Do you, do you get that? Let me put it in kind of East Texas redneck version for you. You ever wondered why a dog sits in the living room and licks himself? 
I know you've never pondered these things, but there's a theological principle hill here, and you're going to learn it here today. Do you know, do you know why they do that? Because they're dogs, not because they can, because they're dogs. Do you know why cats? When you you know you go to a friend's house, I don't have cats in my house, but if I go to a friend's house, you know how they come up and they kind of just start rubbing all over you, you know, and they rub and walk back and forth across your leg, and you're like, okay, go away, please. And then, like, they hop up into your lap, and then they want to be petted, and they're purring, and they're rubbing their head on you, and you're like, okay, I get it. This is, this is getting old. And then by that time, you're like, okay, maybe I can get used to this cat. And then all of a sudden, you just hear this, <coughs> and then they just, like, they lay this fur ball on you. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, why do they do that? Because they're a cat. You ever wonder why geese and ducks head south for the winter? Because they're ducks and geese. You ever wonder why dove migrate and then they pair up? Because they're dove. You're like, seriously, Brian, this is the best you got? No, no. Listen, do you know why people do what's best for themselves? It's because they're born of the flesh. That was what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, Nicodemus, you are a teacher in Israel. You are the professor in Israel. And he says, and you don't even know what it's like to have a relationship with God. He said, you must be born again. And what does Nicodemus do? He goes, huh? And at that point, if Jesus could have said, well, do you know why a dog does what he does? You know what a cat does what he does? He says, you are who you are because you're born of the flesh. You do what you've always known, which is natural to you. See, look at the supernatural. The supernatural occurs in verse 5b. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So basically, people who are in it for themselves, they look at what? The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They are what? Continuing on the pursuit of what's natural to man. That's what Adam did, and that's the seed of Adam in which they live in. Like there was a time in my life where I was self-centered, self-righteous. I thought that everything I did was right. I was easily angered. Uh, I was constantly looking at my own desires and what was in it for me. That was a point in time where I lived in the flesh. I was not conceived in the spirit of God. God didn't live in me. I was sorry. Does that make sense? I I mean, you look at me, you see how I lived. I did whatever I wanted to do. And you could go, man, he's a sorry little kid. And that was me. The only hope that I had at that point was the fact that I looked at my brothers and I go, wow, I'm actually not as sorry as they are. And so that was kind of where I got, you know, I was like, that's my comfort. And see, that's what happens within the church. Like we look at our lives and even though we know what deep down centered in our hearts, we go, I know that I'm not who I say I am but I'm better than him and I'm better than her and I'm better than the rest of these people around me, then we're content to stay right there we are, where we are and live in the flesh. Why? Because what's natural to us has become okay with us because we live in the flesh. But see, that's not God's desire for you. God's desire is that you are changed, that you're reborn and that you're remade and that you live in the spirit of God. That, my friends, is the identity that God wants to give you. And when he gives you that identity in verses 1 through 5, he'll give you the implications of your identity in the the following verses. Look what happens. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death. 
but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. You ever wonder, do I have a relationship with God? Do you ever wonder, like, do I really know God? Do I live by him? Well, let me ask you this question. Is your life characterized by life? Is it characterized by peace? When people look at you, do they see someone who has love and joy? Do they see someone who just has this overwhelming sense of peace even in the midst of calamity going around them? Or do they look at someone who's constantly focused on your own desires, constantly worried about yourself and about how you get ahead? Like, what do they see? Because if you live in the flesh, they're going to see everything natural. If, they, if, they, if you live in the Spirit of God, they're going to see everything in your life that's supernatural. It doesn't come from you. It's not of your own power. It, they look at you in a sense that they go, who is this person? And it's because you live in the Spirit of God. Look at verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You don't honor God's decrees. You don't honor his commands. People who don't love God, people who don't live in the Spirit, listen to me, they have no desire for this. I mean, they don't care about what God's law says. They don't really care about living for him or honoring him. Matter of fact, in verse 8, it says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. In a sense, if people don't know Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God does not live in them, then here's what they claim. One, they reject the idea of sinful man. They reject the idea of a holy God. They reject the idea of a perfect word. They reject the idea of Jesus and his death on the cross as a substitute. They reject the idea that he was once dead and now is alive and that he was resurrected. They reject the idea that he ascended back to the Father. They reject the idea that his spirit lives in you and changes you. They reject the notion and the idea that Jesus is coming back. They reject the idea that Jesus can give you fulfillment and peace and joy and all of those things in your life. Why? Because they're focused on the flesh. They're focused on where they are now. And all too often as Christians, we look a lot like that. And the question is, is why? Why do I look like a person who's consumed with fleshly desires? Why is it that I continue to run back to the very things that I've always run back to? Almost like that dog. Not only does he lick himself, why in the world does he go and just lap up his vomit? Why is it that as sinners we return to the very things that God called us from? Because we're a flesh. And we have a daily pursuit to live in the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is what pleases God. And so you can reject the notion of who he is or you can live and you can be rooted in him. You can be built up in him. You can be strengthened in him. You can even overflow in the Spirit into other people's lives. Why? Because his Spirit lives in you. Matter of fact, verse 9 says, You, meaning people who are alive in Christ... You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And so you wonder if you belong, well, does the Spirit of God live in you? If he does, then he's reconciled you to the Father. Ephesians 1. The greatest implication of the Spirit of God living in you is that he places his Spirit as a deposit in your life. 
And the Spirit of God changes everything about you. Once you formerly knew these things in the flesh, but now you no longer desire what? You no longer desire, nor do you gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Why? Because you're alive in Christ. Which brings you to verse 10. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Get this. You were a dead man walking is what you were. Like you, you, you had no hope. You, you had the full weight of condemnation and the penalty of sin that was bearing down on you. It was pressing on you. And oftentimes you, you wondered, is there any hope for me? And then all of a sudden God sweeps in in the night of day and he what? Brings you out of what? That darkness into his wonderful light. He takes what was dead and he makes it alive. What was formerly blind, he allows to see. You once were mute and now you have a voice to talk for him. You once were lame and he said, get up. Take your mat and go home. And it's all because of his freedom in your life. He has set you free. You're no longer a captive, but now you live in the spirit of God. And people see it. You radiate it. This last week, we had a group of guys who went to Mexico. And uh, man, they had pictures all across Facebook. Just like this wondering, anybody see their pictures? Like you saw the group. Okay, <laughs> if you didn't see those pictures, one of the things that was very apparent in the, all of those pictures is that you had a bunch of burly men who were loving what they were doing. And I mean, they're working hard for the cause of Christ. When I'm talking about working hard, I'm not talking about they're just walking around passing out some gospel tracts. I'm talking like laborious things. Probably for most of them, harder work than what they do here. Amen, amen. <laughs> Except for easy money over here. Uh, the thing is is that they did all of this and then they just radiate this joy like you just look at the pictures and as you're looking at them I mean there's a part of you that you're like I wish I could be there I wish I was with them I I wish I had signed up I wish I had paid the money and I wish I was doing what they were doing I wish I was having the fellowship I wish I was loving on the kids at the orphanage I wish I was putting bricks and mortar up just like they were. I wish I was running electrical conduit just like they were. I wish I was sharing the gospel. I wish I was preaching with them. And like we look at that and we go, man, that was awesome. And here's the problem. All of us in here long to be what they are. And the only thing they are are fallible men that are walking in the Spirit of God. And the tragedy is, is that we believe that we walk better in the Spirit of God if we're on a mission trip. No, no, no. You can walk in the Spirit of God, and you should walk in the Spirit of God no matter where you are. See, like, there's a lot of us that you're you're like your circumstances. Man, if I was there serving with those guys, man, it would be awesome. I'd get this high, man. I'd, I'd kind of get reinvigorated from my Christian walk. No, no, no. Why don't you just get reinvigorated for your marriage? Why don't you get re-excited about the, the job that God's given you? The fact that it actually does put food on the table and that he surrounds you with a lot of people who are selfish and they walk in the flesh, but you can actually be a light in their life. What if God just challenged you and that instead of you constantly looking at yourself and seeing yourself as a failure as a parent, what if you realize that God has given you a purpose and a plan to, to literally charge and change the generation that comes behind you? What if you realize that God's calling you to be a man of God and that it's not your wife's responsibility to leave the home? 
It's not her job. It's yours. God's placed you in a position to lead and to love and to serve. How does that happen? It happens when we quit looking at everybody else and we start looking at Jesus Christ. All of these horizontal relationships improve drastically when we understand who we are in Christ and our vertical position is right. We're reading a book with our staff and um, one of the things that I just shared with them and I'll share with you, although we're not necessarily accountability partners, I'm going to go ahead and share with you a struggle that I have. One of the struggles that I oftentimes have is... If I'm not careful, I'll see the burden of ministry as a problem. And I look at it, and I get discouraged. And not only that, oftentimes I kind of hide out. And I become somewhat unresponsive because of the weight of ministry. And then not only the weight of ministry, also I see relationships and people as a challenge. And so oftentimes I get frustrated, and I get a little more easily angered than I should. And I look around, and I... And I wonder, why is all of that happening? And one of the things that I just explained to our leadership team is this. I said, guys, if you ever see the glaze in my eyes, like I I just seem to be checked out in a way, and that I feel like the ministry is a burden and that people are a challenge to me, I said, understand that it has nothing to do with the people and it has nothing to do with the demands of ministry. It has everything to do that I'm not walking in the Spirit that my freshness and my daily pursuit of God and His, really, His wisdom and His grace in my life is not fresh. And I'm merely doing things I've always done, and I'm merely preaching sermons because I have to preach another one. And I said, and so understand that our job is what? To live in the Spirit because Christ has set us free. And the problem with so many of us is that we are in this daily pursuit of continuing what we've always done, oftentimes looking to our right and left and going, I wish I had what they had, only to miss that you have the greatest access to God that you need. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. You have full access to the throne of grace. All you have to do is pursue him and his righteousness. And then verse 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Do you see this? This is your future hope. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 10? He says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and give it to the full. Jesus says, when you walk in the Spirit, he says, you get to experience all that I have to offer. No longer do you have to be deceived. He says, get your focus right. I've come to give you life. And then the interesting thing is, he's not just giving you life right now in this life, but he says, if I can take Christ, and if you believe in the resurrection, what you believe is, is that Christ was raised from the dead. Just as Jesus spoke to Lazarus and said, hey man, get up and walk. That's what Jesus has done. And on the day of his resurrection, it was a huge miracle that we all profess to believe in. Well, get this. There's nothing short of the same miracle in your life when he took a dead man like you who once walked in the flesh and he's raised you in the spirit of God. And not only does he do that now in this life, but he'll do it, what? As your mortal body comes to an end, he says, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. And so we have the what? Eternal promise of his return. The trumpet will sound. 
The dead in Christ will rise. That's the second coming. And that's the hope of the believer. Now, you may be here and you may be going, this is fantastic. This is great. But what does that look like for me? Look, I brought a list that's rather extensive, but I want you to just listen to it because maybe you can identify. This is what God is calling you and I to look like if you live in the Spirit. You ready for this? You may be going, well, I don't even know. Give me practicality. Here's practicality. It means that you should be alert versus unaware. You should be attentive rather than having unconcern. You should be available rather than self-centered. You should have a boldness rather than a fearfulness. You should be cautious rather than rash. You should have compassion rather than indifference. You should have contentment rather than a coveting desire. You should have creativity rather than underachievement. You should have uh, decisiveness rather than double-mindedness. You should have dependability versus inconsistency. You should have determination rather than being faint-hearted. You should be diligent rather than slothful. You should have discernment rather than judgment. You should have discretion rather than simple-mindedness. You should have enthusiasm enthusiasm rather than apathy. You should have endurance rather than giving up. You should have faith rather than just presumption. You should have flexibility as opposed to resistance. You should have forgiveness rather than rejection. You should be generous rather than uh, stingy. You should be gentle rather than harsh. You should be grateful rather than unthankful. You should be hospitable rather than lonely. You should exude humility versus pride. You should have initiative rather than unresponsiveness. You should be joyful rather than dwelling in self-pity. You should desire justice rather than simple fairness. You should want love rather than selfishness. You ought to be loyal rather than unfaithful. You ought to be obedient rather than willful. You ought to be meek rather than easily angered. You ought to be orderly rather than disorganized. You ought to have patience rather than restlessness. You ought to be resourceful rather than wasteful. You ought to have responsibility rather than unreliability. Uh, You ought to have reverence rather than disrespect. Security versus anxiousness. Self-control rather than self-indulgence. You ought to have sensitivity rather than a callousness. You ought to be sincere rather than hypocritical. You ought to be thrifty rather than extravagant. You ought to have tolerance rather than prejudice. You ought to be truthful rather than deceptive. You ought to have virtue rather than impurity. And you ought to desire uh, wisdom rather than what's what natural. So essentially, you say, I want to leave the flesh, and I want to live in the supernatural. I want to live in all that God has for me. And the bottom line, folks, is this, is if you live for God, people ought to see it. How do you live for God? It takes great focus. Let me just uh, kind of leave you with this story. Last week, I I ended uh, the message of a story of a violinist, and I figured I'd do it two weeks in a row. Uh, there was a guy named Fritz Kreisler, and uh, he was a world-renowned violinist, and he was actually finishing up a tour in Germany, and he was going to be he- heading to London. As he kind of uh, was approaching uh, the pier, and he was getting ready to catch a boat and head to London, he decided that he would stop into a local thrift store, and he was going to just buy a few necessities for the trip. And as he was leaving Hamburg, he goes in and he uh, heads into the store and he buys a few things. But as he's there, the owner of the store and the thrift shop said, Sir, can I see your violin? And the, Fritz just handed him over the violin and all of a sudden the guy takes off and he's gone into oblivion. Well, Chrysler is kind of wondering what in the world just happened here. I've got a boat to catch and this guy just took off with my violin. 
Well, about five or six minutes later, the guy returned, and he actually had two police officers with him. And the police officers looked at Fritz and said, Sir, you're actually under arrest. And the guy, Fritz was like, Do what? I'm under arrest? He's like, Yeah. You're under arrest. He's like, I haven't taken anything. I promise everything I've got in my hands, I'm about to pay for. The guy took off with my violin. And he said, well, it's actually not your violin. It's Fritz Chrysler's violin. And you stole it. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, I am Fritz Chrysler. Well, let's see some identification. Well, I really don't have a whole lot. Well, then how in the world are you going to convince us that you're Fritz Chrysler? Well, let me ask you this. What would you do? You'd have to play a piece. And so what does he do? He takes out the violin, and for three minutes he plays masterpiece. And at the end of it, he looks at him, he says, do you believe that I'm Fritz Chrysler now? And they said, yes, that's sufficient. Here's your violin. And he catches the boat, and he heads to London. But church, I think so many times in our life, we work. We work to convince other people that we are in Christ. And the one thing that determines it for us is not what we do, not the fact that we showed up and went to church, not because we put our pretty face on and we pretend that our marriage is okay, not the fact that we got our kids dressed and although we yelled and screamed at each other, we walked to the doors with a smile on our face. That's not convincing. What's convincing is that you live in the Spirit and that everything you do exudes the character of God. So my prayer is, and I just want to leave you with this last thing, is this. When you understand your identity, you can reset your focus on you? No, on Christ and his purposes. And may we do that in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for just the ability to discover your word. And Father, I pray um, that you would give us a reset of our identity. May you help us to know the significant weight of what you've called us out of and what you've called us to. Lord, we were formerly dead in our trespasses. We were formerly dead in our sin. And in the flesh, we gratified our own sinful desires. Lord, we did what we wanted to do. But Lord, the day that we surrendered ourselves to you, you called us out of darkness into wonderful light. You made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Father, you gave us a new identity. And Lord, because of that, you put the Spirit of God in our lives, which now allows us to live, to act, to serve like Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, that you would just resonate in our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, and Lord, that you would take this callousness that's been built up in our lives and that you would renew it with a steadfastness and a strength to walk according to the Spirit of God. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.